Hello and welcome to today's Euractiv webinar event, where we'll be asking whether the Fit for 55 is fit for purpose when it comes to the role of renewable fuels on the road to 2030 and beyond. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels, and I'm coming at you live from the Euractiv studios in the heart of the EU quarter. Now, we're getting this Fit for 55 proposal from the European Commission in just a few weeks. It's slated to be unveiled on the 14th of July, and uh, everybody is really waiting in anticipation for this package because it's going to be very, very important. It comes as part of the EU's Green Deal legislative roadmap, which outlines an overall trajectory to 2050. But this is really concerning the interim target of 2030 which has a target of 55% emissions reductions. Now, this package is going to include major revamps of several pieces of EU legislation and several pieces of legislation which affect the renewable fuels sector specifically. And those include the Renewable Energy Directive, the CO2 standards for cars, the revamp of the effort sharing regulation, adding transport to the emissions trading system, and the Energy Taxation Directive. Some of these pieces of legislation have been quite elastic over the past 10 years, you could say. The revision of the Renewable Energy Directive in particular will be the third such overhaul since the legislation was enacted in 2009. And for crop-based biofuels, there has been a particular back and forth of EU policy. So now the sector is waiting to see what the new legislative framework will mean for the future contribution of biofuels and other renewable fuels to the 2030 goal. It's a big package of EU legislation, so there's a lot to digest. So we're very lucky to have a distinguished panel of uh, people here to talk with us about what to expect. Let me introduce them now. We have Zlatko Kreger. Uh, he is a policy officer for sustainable and intelligent transport at the European Commission's uh, Transport Department. We have Henna Verkunen, Finnish centre-right MEP and member of the Transport Committee in the European Parliament. We have Benjamin Krieger, head of government affairs at Kleppa, the industry association representing European automotive suppliers. We have Stephanie Serlin, Program Director uh, for the International Council on Clean Transportation, which is a nonprofit that provides technical and scientific analysis to environmental regulators. And finally, we have Valerie Corum, Director, uh, Director for Regulatory Affairs uh, for Alcohol and Ethanol Europe at Terios, and as of today, the newly elected president of Renewable Ethanol Industry Association, ePure. Welcome to all of you, thanks for joining us today. Now, you guys at home are going to be able to ask your questions to the panelists as well. To do that, you want to be logged into Vimeo and ask the questions in using the Q&A feature. I'll be able to see those questions as they come in, and I will put them to the panelists at the end of the panel in the last uh, 20 minutes or so. I'm going to go ahead and start that Q&A now. So that's open as of now. You can go ahead and put in questions Starting now, I love to see those questions as they come in because it, it gives me a good idea of what you guys are really interested in and what you're going to ask. And also that way I don't overlap with my questions to the panelists. I can make sure that we, we really satisfy what you all want to know. Because as I said, there is a big, big appetite for information about this upcoming monster of a package. Maybe monster sounds negative. Upcoming uh, 
huge behemoth of a package, let's say. So Zlatko, let's start with you. Now, the Commission's Green Deal strategy says the transport emissions will have to decrease by 90%, um, but they are now decreasing. Uh, sorry, they have to decrease by 90% and they are now increasing. As we know, transport has been a very hard nut to crack when it comes to uh, emissions. So what is the Commission's strategy to reduce transport emissions and how will renewable fuels play a role? Yeah. Hi, uh, well, uh, I'm glad that I can uh, speak uh, on this panel today. Uh, yeah, well, that's a, that's a very uh, elaborate question because you're basically asking everything in, in one single uh, question. But I can tell you this, uh, we do see the, the numbers and we see that uh, transport is really a key contributor. Uh, and as you said, the transport emissions are not decreasing, they're even slightly increasing, so we we understand and we are fully aware that the behemoth of a package, as you called it, uh, is a, a bit on the transport heavy side. Let's say it like that. It's it, that there are many transport initiatives in it. Um, we, I mean, I can list them. You list them at the beginning, but specifically transport oriented ones are the CO2 standards, CO2 emission standards for cars and vans, which are being revised and uh, the directive uh, revision of the alternative fuel and infrastructure directive that, that is in my unit uh, and we are we are working on that which is a measure which will uh, which will uh, increase the the uptake of, uh, of of alternative fuels in europe in a sense by building up infrastructure making customers more relaxed about their choices when it comes to vehicles and transportation and as well, uh, the overarching Renewable Energy Directive, ETS. But when it comes to uh, the, the role of sustainable fuels, I can tell you as, as, a, as, as something which I'll probably repeat a couple of times, uh, we do see a big role for, for these renewable fuels in the future mix. Uh, our intentions and our, 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 our focus is, of course, to, 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 to use them uh, in sectors which are difficult to decarbonize, on, in sectors where action is not easy and it doesn't offer, we don't have a, on offer many possibilities, such as aviation and waterborne transport. But nevertheless, uh, we, we do see these, uh, these fuels of, as having the role uh, in all sector modes, but uh, with a priority focus on aviation maritime. Thanks a lot. Let's go next to Henna Verkunen. Um, so Henna, what do you envision for the role of renewable fuels in the future transport mix? Yeah, thank you, Dave. Uh, of course, I think that renewable fuels, they are very important part of our energy mix. But I think that we as a decision makers, we should have very technology neutral approach because uh, as you said in your opening remarks, we are facing huge challenges with the transport emissions because it's the only sector where the emissions they have been growing uh, during the last decades. So we are facing uh, very big challenges and it means that all the possible solutions we are having, they are needed. So I think renewable fuels, they are very important tool there. But of course, we need also other, we need uh, like hydrogen, electrification, and have to also take into account that we have very different uh, regions in, in Europe and also very different transport modes. 
aviation, maritime transport, urban transport, freight transport, road transport. I think uh, everybody is facing a little bit different challenges and we have a little bit different solutions. So I would like to very much see that the parliament and decision makers, politicians, we should have very technology neutral approach and then the industry they should find out that what is the most efficient way to cut the emissions but i i think especially renewables are very important part of that because we know that we can use them in the current vehicles because it, it takes time before we have electric vehicles on the road so much that we can really cut the emissions but renewables we can use uh, in our current fleet and i think that is very important part of the solution how we are cutting emissions and i would like to see more ambitious targets also uh, on that when now when we are speaking about the new uh, red uh, two directive or red three uh, directive thanks a lot so benjamin there's a lot of rumors floating around out there about what's actually going to be uh, in the proposal one of them is that uh, there could be a zero emissions target for vehicles that measures tailpipe emissions. Uh, and some people are worried that that would actually mean a de facto ban on the internal combustion engine, which would kind of rule out renewable liquid fuels. What do you think would be the effect of a net zero tailpipe measured target? Oh, thank you, Dave. Uh, and I think you answered the question already, almost. Uh, within the current logic of the CO2 fleet targets regulation, which looks, as you said, on tailpipe emissions only, which means it does not take into account upstream emissions uh, and does not take into account production of the energy and potential contribution of renewable fuels. So within this tailpipe logic, a zero emission target leaves only very little choice as to the technologies that can be used. Currently, this is actually only the battery electric vehicle. So if we are looking at a zero emission tailpipe target, as of the year that this becomes law, and you need a car, Dave, this car will need to have a battery and a cable. Whether or not this fits your needs, whether or not you can charge it, whether or not there is the renewable energy to charge it, so that it will be actually climate neutral, uh, and uh, whether or not it, you can afford it, really. So in, in that sense, I would like to underline very much what Hena has already said. It would be much more pragmatic uh, to take into account the potential contribution of renewable fuels, sustainable renewable fuels, and through that level the playing field and give electric mobility the important role that it has to play in the future, but where it's not the optimal solution, leave the choice for other technology options. Mm. Well, uh, let's go to Stephanie next. Stephanie, with this in mind about the different effect that different regulatory approaches will have, um, what kind of renewable fuels would you like to see as part of the transport mix in the future, especially based on all the research that you guys are doing? Thank you, Dave, and it's a, an honor to be part of this panel. Uh, I agree with my distinguished co-panelists that renewable fuels absolutely have to be part of the picture of a decarbonized transport sector. And if we want to get to a carbon-free transport sector by mid-century in Europe, we need transformative ultra-low carbon or even carbon-negative fuels to get there. Now we could, uh, I think everyone is tired of talking about indirect land use change, but when we consider the full life cycle emissions of various fuel pathways, it's clear that the kind of ultra-low carbon or carbon-negative fuels that we need to get to a zero-carbon future include the following. 
cellulosic biofuels that are made from sustainable biomass, such as agricultural residues or municipal waste, biogas made from waste, such as animal manure or sewage sludge, uh, hydrogen produced from additional renewable electricity, and in certain applications that are hard to decarbonize, such as aviation, also e-fuels or power to liquids, again, produced from additional renewable electricity. Now, these technologies are not quite there yet. We need massive investment started now to be able to ramp up these technologies to get significant decarbonization within the next decade. And this is the major challenge that the RED2 or RED3 has to face. Uh, but we also have to recognize that renewable fuels cannot get us all of the way there. While these pathways can be very, uh, can deliver great greenhouse gas savings, we have to recognize that they have limited potential because there's only so much biomass available. So we have to take a two-pronged strategy to decarbonizing the transport sector, push as hard as we can with battery electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles, and then use low carbon renewable fuels to decarbonize the remaining parts of the transport sector, such as aviation. And we need both of those strategies to get to a fully decarbonized transportation sector. Thanks a lot. So let's turn to Valerie. Uh, what is your vision for specifically for renewable ethanol's role in lowering the emissions in transport? Thank you, David. And thank you for inviting me to talk to this conference. Um, I think um, we know that the transport sector is by far the most difficult sector to decarbonize. We have to act simultaneously on three different levels. Uh, fuels, we have to decarbonize the fuels, we have to adapt the technologies, we have to adapt the uh, 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 infrastructure, and, and therefore this is very complicated. And, and in addition to that, we have two, um, two, two, two very important constraints. We have a, a constraint of urgency to act quickly and, and, and heavily, we have to decarbonize heavily. And we also have a, an economic and social Social economic constraint because we have millions of uh, Europeans still need their cars. Um, many of them having limited resources, and um, and therefore, I mean, we, we we have to remember what happened uh, in the, back in 2019, 2018, I think it was the the yellow jacket movement. Uh, so we have to be very careful uh, when it comes to uh, supporting and and not leaving anybody behind when it comes to decarbonizing the transport sector. So against this backdrop, we have to be extremely pragmatic and consistent in our actions. For us, as ePure, uh, this needs, this requires at least four uh, conditions to be met. The first one, and I, I fully support what has been said by Anna uh, earlier, we have to promote all available uh, alternatives. Uh, which of course have to be sustainable. And this of course includes renewable ethanol because uh, as we uh, just uh, found out, uh, we have now a, a reduction of uh, greenhouse gas emission, which is uh, reaching 75% compared to fossil fuel. So we have to uh, use this potential. And we also have to make sure that we give the consumers a, a diversified uh, option uh, because this is the best way for uh, to adapt to consumer circumstances, uh, be it geographic circumstances and, and financial circumstances. Not everybody will be able to afford uh, an electric car or run on an electric car, depending on where you live in the EU. Some 
remote areas. Uh, and studies have shown that renewable ethanol is one of the cheapest options per uh, CO2, per ton of CO2, uh, avoided ton of CO2. Uh, you don't have to change your car necessarily. You don't have to change the uh, entire distribution network. So these are options to, 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 to consider, of course. But in order to respect all the two first uh, conditions, you, we need to, first off, and that's key in my view, uh, we need to respect the technology neutrality. And that is the, I would say, almost the centerpiece of the system. If we don't respect this principle, then, uh, which means basically we have to measure tailpipe emissions, not at the tailpipe, but on the full life cycle analysis, which means from way to wheel. Uh, and if you do that, if you do measure all the upstream emissions from way to wheel, then you don't have such thing as a zero uh, emission car, or you don't have such thing as the end of the IC vehicles, because because every option um, is considered depending on how much they can contribute in the decarbonization of the transport sector. So finally, and if we are to achieve this uh, important uh, uh, target by 2030, and considering that the Commission uh, said that by 2030, about 89% of the cars running on EU roads will be uh, running on, uh, on, uh, on fossil fuels. And how do we decarbonize those cars? We don't have some sort of low carbon liquid fuel. Then if we if we don't unleash the potential that Europe's, Europe has uh, in terms of producing more renewable ethanol, then we are not going to be able to decarbonize it. And talking about ILUC, I know Stephanie, nobody wants to talk about it. We have enough about ILUC, but just to come back uh, on it, Science has been able to uh, distinguish between good and bad biofuel, which was important an important exercise to perform. And bioethanol produced in Europe falls in the category of good biofuels. Therefore, we believe that there is no reason that justifies uh, maintaining the cap at that current level, at least. So we need to make sure that we are not uh, limiting ourselves because we cannot uh, on the on one hand, set ourselves tremendous targets very quickly, very short uh, period of time, in a very short period of time, and at the same time, ignore the potential we have when we know that this potential is really uh, decarbonizing uh, fossil fuels. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So, Valerie, you mentioned the Yellow Vest movement, and I think that, that goes to a real heart of concerns about some of these possible legislative proposals. Uh, because we know that cars have a very long life, right? There's a big lead time for design of cars. Uh, and also, people keep cars for a long time. And a lot of segments of society couldn't possibly afford a new vehicle and can only consider a used vehicle. So we know the vehicles stay on the road a very long time. So Zlatko, I, I want to put a question to you. And I know that. Uh, at the moment, you're limited in what you can say about the upcoming proposals, completely understandably. Um, but how is the Commission taking into account the, the, the legacy vehicles that will still be on the road uh, well up, up to 2030 and well beyond that might not meet the requirements of uh, the legislation that would be set? 
Um, how can you make sure that those, those vehicles are accommodated for and also that people who can only afford that type of used vehicle aren't penalized by the legislation that's coming out next month? Yeah. Well, uh, first to tell you an obvious thing, uh, in the next three weeks until we have the Fit for 55 proposal, commission officials will not be your greatest uh, interlocutors, but I'll try to be uh, as detailed as possible. Uh, well, you, you are mentioning some very clear facts there is that, that uh, even with, with a fast uptake, which we really see as a spectacular uptake of low and zero emission vehicles in Europe, uh, legacy vehicles are still on our roads and they dominate the fleet for years to come. But uh, we are we are working on the CO2 standards, for instance, which are which are by definition focused on new vehicles and their impacts assessed on the whole market are, are on the whole market of used and new vehicles are also assessed in, in, in the impact assessment that the commission is pre uh, preparing and will publish in, in uh, like I said, three weeks time. And when it comes to vehicles that uh, older vehicles, which will stay on the road, uh, we, we also, as, as, a, as a role for, uh, for renewable fuels, we see the renewable energy directive. It is already out there and it is, it is being uh, revised as well as part of the Fit for 55 package. And without going into details, but that also definitely is more focused on uh, the vehicles or vessels which are already operating. Uh, so, uh, the Commission is, the, is looking into new vehicles in, in vehicle emission standards, but the whole market is assessed and, the whole imp and all of the impacts are assessed. And uh, with the proliferation of low and zero emission vehicles from plug-in hybrids to battery electric and now uh, as well fuel cell electric vehicles are coming up, uh, we are seeing uh, that uh, eventually the, the, they're expanding into different segments. Their their costs are going down, and in DigiMove, we are, for instance, which I heard from from one of the co-panelists, co uh, we are also working on the concerns about infrastructure availability. So we want the recharging and refueling infrastructure to be available in all corners of the EU. That means uh, along the main corridors, but also in, the, in, in all member states. And that will, uh, this revised proposal will uh, ensure that, uh, that, that they it will accompany the CO2 standards. So when we have new alternative fueled vehicles coming up to the market, there will be infrastructure available to, to, for them to use. And that uh, lowers the cost for the consumers and uh, and 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 uh, increases the the chances that they are they're going to be able to uh, to afford this this massive change. Benjamin, what do you think about that kind of vision for how to deal with the legacy vehicles? Thanks, Dave. Um, I would almost go as far as saying the the fleet on the streets is a hard to abate sector, just as maritime and shipping is. Because you can't do anything about these vehicles technically, really. Uh, some retrofitting maybe, but this won't solve the problem. The problem can be solved though, by defossilizing the fuel supply. And that is as important as defossilizing greening 
the electricity that we need to charge the electric vehicles. So both sides of the coin are important. And one very important keyword in this context, uh, Slatko, you have mentioned it, is the Renewable Energies Directive. And uh, as the automotive suppliers, we hope very much uh, that the proposal for a revision of this directive is going to be ambitious to bring more renewable energies, sorry, and also renewable fuels into the market. But we would go, or we would recommend going a step further even, and bring demand and supply together by creating a mechanism, for example, for the automotive manufacturers to invest into renewable fuels if this fits their strategy, if this is, from the business point of view, a viable way forward. Currently, that's not possible. We spoke about uh, the tank-to-wheel logic in the CO2 fleet regulation. As long as this principle is in place, there is not much of an incentive to invest in renewable fuels. The technology for renewable fuels is there. All the processes are known. There are enough demonstration projects around the EU that show that this is a viable way forward. What we need now are significant investments. And I think uh, the colleague from ICCT uh, has mentioned this before. These are significant investments. And the chance actually is now, the opportunity is there now to unlock these investments. But there we need to take a look again at the CO2 fleet regulation and create an incentive for the investments in renewable fuels. Stephanie, let me get you to respond to that. I mean, is, is that the best way to deal with and accommodate the existing, the, the fleet on the street, as Ben put it? I like that expression. Um, is that is it the, is the best way to, to be making these investments in renewable fuels? Is that the best way to ensure a better transition here and, and accommodate the fleet on the streets? I think we need to focus the most on decarbonizing future vehicle sales. Um, cars will stick around for about 15 years or so. Um, but if we continue uh, building cars with internal combustion engines, then that will affect us for decades to come. So we need to focus on pushing as hard as we can on battery electric vehicles, fuel cell electric vehicles. Um, we know that the potential for very low carbon advanced biofuels will not be enough to replace liquid fuels in the transportation sector. It can make a small contribution, perhaps towards aviation, really hard to decarbonize sectors, but there's no way it's going to solve our problem of the current vehicle fleet, especially if we continue to produce internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, I hear a lot of talk about e-fuels, uh, power to liquids. This is a fuel that's produced from renewable electricity and captured CO2. Um, but there's no way that this is the solution either for the road sector in particular. E-fuels are an inherently inefficient process. It, at best, half of the energy that's input into the production is lost in the form of heat. They are inherently expensive uh, and impractical. And there's pretty much no way that e-fuels and internal combustion engine will be a cheaper or more practical solution than battery electric vehicles for the road sector. Again, there may be a role to play for renewable e-fuels in very hard to decarbonize sectors such as aviation. Uh, Valerie, let me get you to respond to that. Do you share that impression of e-fuels? My view is, and I believe this is not what I hear from everyone I, I speak to about this subject, is that we have to diversify the options. So e-fuels, yes, of course, if it's, if it's uh, useful, if it's uh, decarbonizing, if it's sustainable, if it's not coming from the other side of the world, uh, why not? Of course, we need to check. We need to use all the options that are available. Uh, 
to decarbonize the transport sector. And uh, what I hear is that sometimes a lot of people say electricity is going to, to be the dominant technology to decarbonize transport. And that, I think, is, is not the best way forward to accommodate everybody and to decarbonize quickly as much as, 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 we, as we have to decarbonize the transport sector. Hannah, I wanted to go to you specifically on this issue of the socioeconomic impact. Um, I know you were stressing technology neutrality uh, before. Um, Stephanie thinks that we really need to be concentrating on the, the zero emission vehicles. Um, do you have concerns about a socioeconomic impact resulting from a regulatory process that, that rewards zero emission vehicles and maybe then rewards the, the segments of society that are most able to afford those vehicles. Yeah, I think it's a it's very important question. And I think nowadays often when we speak about sustainable growth, we are just uh, uh, too much focusing to environmental impact. But we have to remember that if we speak about sustainable growth, we have to take account also uh, the social and economical part of that and if they are not sustainable in social way or economically then they are not sustainable at all so i think it's important to have always these or three, three pillars with us when we are making decisions and um, for example like i said uh, in in europe we have very different regions so we can't make that kind of legislation legislation that is just targeting to some of the regions which have very difficult impacts for some people living in some regions. Especially, of course, I'm underlining this because I'm living in Finland where we have very long winter time, we have winter conditions here, we have long distances here, and for example, that kind of aspects we have to think when we are making legislation in the European level. But of course, here also in, in the member states, some, some people are more vulnerable than, than other groups. And often, for example, I'm facing the question from the citizens that they are they feel a little bit guilty that they are driving by old car because they don't have money to buy that kind of new expensive electric cars. And I think they don't have to feel sorry about that because I think it's always better if we look uh, all the life cycle emissions uh, of the car manufacturing, I think it's better to use the old cars also to the end and after that they can be part of the circular economy but we can also cut emissions like it was already mentioned many times of the old vehicles and these renewable fuels biofuels they are very important part of the solution and in finland we have had quite a long time already that kind of blending mandate that we have to have big part of the fuels has to be renewable here and i think the people they have very positive attitude towards that because we can make all these renewable biofuels uh, out of waste and residues so it's very sustainable and one option is also that we can also support retrofitting uh, of the old cars for example in finland we have done it for the biogas that the people they can do retrofitting and they will get also support uh, public support for that that they can retrofit their, their old car so i think there's many solutions of course now we are speaking very much about fuels but it's also important part of the 
cutting the emission and decarbonization that how we are planning uh, the cities and the transport system as a whole. And if we are having very smart and modern infrastructure, it means also that we don't have that kind of traffic jams. We can have more smooth operations on, on the road. And that is also one way to cut the emissions if we are using digital options and also having smart, modern infrastructure, we can cut emissions also that way very much. Valerie, you wanted to respond to that? Just, I just want to add something. I mean, it's about decarbonizing the fuels, not regardless of the technology, and that's why we have this uh, uh, technology neutrality. Whether it is an IC or not an IC, electric hydrogen, if it decarbonizes, it should be uh, promoted in the EU. I mean, if you take IC, they run today on mostly uh, fossil fuels, but they could be running on much more ethanol, which again is sustainable and reduces greenhouse gas emissions uh, up to 85%, 85%, you know, very quickly, I mean, very easily. You don't even have to change your car. In France, we have, for instance, the uh, tool kit, which you can fix on your engine and that converts your car, your your fossil car into a, a car which can perfectly run on E85. I mean, on, on any mix between E0 and E85, actually, it's a flex car. And so we can we can promote this kind of car. So we can easily, without investing in a new car and dumping your old car, you can still use your car and, and decarbonize it by uh, using existing fossil fuel, I mean, uh, renewable fuels. And in, in Brazil, for instance, these cars can be running on E100. So you see, it's not about the engine, it's about the fuel that you put in the engine. Well, uh, we have a bunch of questions already from the audience. I'm gonna to go to those in a second. But first, I did wanna ask the panelists about the idea of moving transport into the emissions trading system or making it subject to emissions trading. Zlatko, I won't put you on the spot for this because I know you can't say what's in the proposal. So maybe I will get the opinions of the panelists first and then get uh, you to react. Now, what I'm hearing and I know Zlatko, you can't confirm this, but what I'm hearing is that the commission has decided to move transport into the ETS, but not into the ETS, to put it in a whole separate ETS, to have its own dedicated ETS, something similar to what Germany has had in place. We don't know. We don't know what will be in the proposal, but that's what I hear. Um, Stephanie, let me get your thoughts on this first. Are you, uh, do you think it's a good idea for transport to be subject to the ETS? Yes, but it absolutely uh, cannot be the only solution. Um, there has to be stronger measures to decarbonize transport because it is one of the harder and more expensive sectors to decarbonize. So we really need um, targeted solutions um, like uh, incentives for battery electric fuel cell electric vehicles, as well as um, for ultra low carbon fuels. Benjamin, uh, Benjamin, what do you think about the idea? Uh, the the evaluation of including uh, road transport into the ETS uh, by the European Commission is, of course, very welcome from our point of view. Uh, we think long term the ETS is an excellent tool uh, for the efficient regulation of uh, carbon emissions. But then, of course, it depends very much on details and how it is done. Uh, there, unfortunately, we don't have much information yet. Obviously, uh, the proposal will come only in, in July. That's the expectation. 
Um, but maybe only so much. We would need, in order for the ETS to really fulfill its objective of defossilizing the fuel supply, we would need a quite significant price signal to come from this uh, from this ETS for fuels that is foreseen. There's a risk, of course, that such cost would be passed on to the consumer, uh, and then you would have a quite significant uh, effect on uh, heating cost and, and fueling cost for your car. Or the price signal is less high, but then we risk that it does not do what it's meant to achieve, which is the defossilizing of the fuel supply. So th there it's very, very tricky uh, to get the right balance uh, of the ETS regulation. But then this in conjunction also with all the other pieces of legislation that we have in, in the Fit for 55 package, CO2 fleet regulation, uh, the renewable energies rules, the energy taxation directive. So this is tricky. Uh, and this is really challenging for the colleagues working uh, in, in the commission to, uh, to get right. Yeah, for sure. That those are definitely some of the concerns I've been hearing uh, in town. Henna, what about you? Are you in favor of this move for road transport to be subject to the ETS? Uh, no, in uh, in one way, I'm. Uh, I think ETS is a good system because it's a market-based approach. But then the problem comes when we have very much overlapping regulations uh, with ETS because then I think we should very much. Uh, have only the ETS and not too much uh, uh, other regulations which are often overlapping with it. But uh, with the transport, I think it's very challenging to find that kind of solution which will decarbonize the transport in an efficient way. So I'm, I'm very interested in to see the outcome of the Commission's work, but I think that this is quite problematic sector when we speak about ETS and transport. And uh, yeah. Wait and see. Indeed. Valerie, what are your predictions for what this would mean? Well, I, I fully support what has been said so far. I mean, it, uh, it depends, first of all, how it's done. And it's a very, as, as I said earlier, it's a very difficult sector to decarbonize. So, first of all, if you are to include, if you are to put a, a transport in an ETS, uh, it has to be a separate ETS. It can't be like the existing ETS because the price, the carbon price might be far different. Uh, so it has to be a separate ETS and, and it has to be done in such a way that it, it works because we know that uh, this system of uh, market, uh, the marketing of, uh, of uh, uh, credits uh, can work or not depending on the price. Uh, 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 so many parameters that uh, you, you have to be very careful how to uh, always make sure that the system rolls uh, properly and also, of course, that it doesn't lead to a situation where any cost, uh, especially high cost, would be passed on to the consumers for the reasons I explained before, because we don't want to have another uh, uh, episode of a yellow jacket. So Zlatko, let me get you to respond to some of the concerns that were expressed there. Yeah. Of course, just the details are, are, are beyond this conversation. We, we, I'm sure that everybody is eager to know the details, but uh, uh, in general, I, I hear a lot from, from other co-panelists is that um, concerns about, uh, that there are concerns about uh, what kind of price signal does it send and what kind of a effect on, 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 on consumers and our citizens any of the changes will have. 
and I, I, I wanted to assure you that, that this, uh, I think it was mentioned as a pillar, is definitely looked into. And we are looking at uh, all the effects uh, that, that our citizens will have because of the regulation that is in the pipeline. So, for instance, uh, improve their quality is, is, is a great co-benefit. Uh, uh, we are also looking at, uh, at, at, at distribution uh, across the EU when it comes to, 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 to uh, impacts, impacts when it, uh, on price, in impacts on, on consumer uh, acceptance. So, in general, I'm hearing a lot because we're on the topic of renewable fuels. I'm, I'm hearing a lot that we are, we have a situation where this is a very valuable commodity, effectively, you could say it like that. And we do see that all the measures that we are using in the package might be best served. It would be best served if, if we are using these fuels uh, in, in sectors where decarbonization and in general sustainability is harder to achieve. And yes, we are, we are definitely looking for technological neutrality, but we also want to see the scale and we, we want to see the faster uptake uh, of renewable fuels. We want to see them coming uh, fast to the market for these, uh, for these sectors, aviation and waterborne sectors mostly. So yeah, on the details of ETS, I will just skip the comments. Sorry about that. Yeah, completely understandable. Uh, Valerie, you wanted to respond to that? Yeah, I, I forgot okay. one thing. The ETS means we are targeting on emissions and therefore we are also, this is very important because we always forget about that, but we have to make sure that we distinguish between uh, fossil CO2 and non-fossil CO2 or biogenic, but non-fossil CO2. If we, if we don't make the distinction, like when you, for instance, measure emissions at the tailpipe emission, at the tailpipe of a car, then you are not making any difference between what is coming out, which is biogenic or, or which is fossil. And that's, that's the, the problem we have today. Uh, so we, it's very important that if we do have an ETS and any, any future legislation that this is corrected, that we do distinguish between the two category, categories of CO2, because they are, of course, not the same. Let's take some questions from the audience that have come in via Vimeo. Again, you guys can use the Q&A feature on Vimeo to send in your questions. I have two questions here that are similar, that are for both Zlatko and Stephanie, and anyone else if they'd like to jump in. Uh, so the question, first question comes from Maximilian Gray. When will battery electric mobility be subject to sustainability criteria? The ecological problems are obvious. And I think this is referring to uh, the, the raw materials needed for electric vehicles, uh, that type of issue. And so then a related question. Um, I lost it. Hold on, sorry. Yes, from Robert Fierhutz. Um, Can Stephanie explain where to find all the rare materials needed to make the millions of batteries for electric vehicles? So Zlatko, let's start with you. Yeah, well, thank you for the question. Uh, uh, the Commission is actually looking into the all aspects of sustainability of battery electric vehicles, for instance, through the batteries directive. 
as we want uh, the batteries used in all applications, but especially in, in transport, to be recyclable, reused, or or that, that we basically collect the raw materials, the very valuable raw materials, which the second question is asking as well, on uh, and that we keep them in Europe. So uh, yes, uh, the recycling, for instance, and the hazardous materials there are very important to be tackled, and they are part of our of, of our agenda. There's there's no question about that. Uh, Stephanie, how do we address these concerns about um, the sustainability and environmental aspects of EVs? Uh, thanks. So as far as we know, there will be enough minerals and raw materials available to make the battery electric vehicles we need. That's not to say there aren't sustainability concerns such as environmental impacts of mining. And I don't think we should ignore those. I think we need to find a way to address them. Um, and this is also another reason to also be supporting fuel cell electric vehicles, which use different materials. And so supporting both pathways, both of which can be very low carbon, um, is a, a way to kind of hedge and make sure that we have a, a good decarbonization solution. Um, but I also want to address a, a common misconception, which is that the greenhouse gas emissions from producing batteries offsets the emission savings um, from using battery electric vehicles compared to internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, some years ago, five, 10 years ago, there were a number of studies put out showing that the battery production emissions are very high. Um, that was before we had real data. Now that we have significant data on actual production of batteries from large manufacturing facilities, we can see that the, the emissions are actually quite low and that's reflected in more recent um, life cycle analyses. Uh, we're about to put out a new uh, vehicle life cycle analysis um, soon from the ISCCT that will show that under pretty much all circumstances in Europe, other regions around the world, um, using battery electric vehicles compared to internal combustion engine vehicles uh, greatly reduces greenhouse gas emissions, no matter which way you slice it. Even when you, you consider the, the emissions from manufacturing batteries, even when you consider the emissions um, from continuing to use some fossil fuels in the electric grid, um, because that the electric grid is gradually decarbonizing and over the lifetime of a vehicle um, purchased today, a battery electric vehicle purchased today, um, we will see the benefits of the decarbonizing grid um, before it ends its lifetime. Did anyone else want to come in on this sustainability of EVs issue? Yes, Hannah? I'd like to. Yes, thank you, Dave. I think this is a very important question because that's what I was criticizing a couple of years ago when we had this hype around electric vehicles because uh, I have recognized that in the European level we often have that kind of hypes. A couple of years ago it was the electrification of transport and now it's a hydrogen and I don't know what will be the next but anyway I think uh, all the solutions are needed and we should have very balanced and long-term approach also when we are making decisions and we as a politicians we didn't shouldn't choose uh, winners and losers we should set the targets and then i think the industry they should find out that what is the best and most efficient way to decarbonize the transport sector but uh, that is that is true what was said about the battery industry that it haven't been sustainable at all and we know that we have been totally dependent of the Asian production when we speak about the batteries. During the last years, uh, uh, many actions have been done in, in the Europe and uh, 
uh, think slowly now it will come up also also in in Europe that we will have also our own battery industry here and we can have the whole value chain more sustainable but it haven't been like that and I think the paradox is often that the people who are supporting very much electric vehicle they are very much against all the mining projects in Europe and I think this is also very reckless so I think we have to be responsible decision makers and we have to look at the sustainability very carefully always okay so we have a next question uh, Valerie you wanted to come in on that go ahead yeah just uh, just with more more po um, uh, point on, uh, on electrification uh, there's a, a lot of people also now interested in hybrid cars now it's not just full hybrid or plug-in hybrids but there's a lot of uh, uh, interest by the consumers uh, towards uh, hybrid cars because uh, they can be flexible, of course, and they uh, can uh, reduce the problem of uh, autonomy, uh, you know, whether or not you find the electricity, you can always use, use biofuels. And this also is completely consistent with that idea that we need to have a variety of options. And if you have cars which can run on any kind of fuel you can possibly find on the market, then as a consumer point of view, uh, or from a consumer point of view, it's uh, it's the ideal. Benjamin, you also wanted to come in on that. Yes, just a short addition, uh, and it's it's great to hear, Stephanie, uh, that we have better data on the production of batteries, uh, and I think also other parts of the uh, of the value chain of of vehicles and and mobility in general. Um, this opens, of course, a risk to put one study against the other. Uh, which doesn't bring us very much further necessarily, uh, makes us all smarter, but, uh, but the, the deciding step, the decisive step is probably uh, to think about how to reflect these, uh, these scientific data that we have in regulation, how we ensure that we level the playing field and really have technology to compete on its respective merits, and from our point of view, it is obviously uh, making the step forward from, from tank-to-wheel approach to well-to-wheel approach, taking into consideration the energy that goes into, uh, into fueling the cars uh, and possibly the longer term also uh, making the next step to life cycle analysis uh, to really look at where do we have the emissions in the supply chain and through that make sure that we actually not only displace emissions in the supply chain, but really bring them down uh, and decisively. Okay, let's go to next question. We have an, another question that is uh, targeted specifically at Zlatko and Stephanie. So this question comes from John Cooper from Fuels Europe. Uh, EVs are growing because of both push measures, manufacturer's CO2 standards, and pull standards, uh, pull measures, low tax. How can we create pull measures for renewable liquid fuels? Right now, we only have push measures in the Renewable Energy Directive. Zlatko? Ah, good question. Uh, well, it depends on the sectors as well. Uh, we, we, we are, of course, seeing that member states are using their, their fiscal powers uh, to, to, to support various alternative powertrains, mostly for either plug-in hybrid electric or, or, or hydrogen fuel cars. 
but uh, the, this this is of course within the merit of the member states when it comes to european side we are we are looking as well into supporting the uptake of renewable fuels quickly uh, through for instance we 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 are in as part of the fit for 55 purposes we have uh, two, two 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 proposals on fuel eu uh, maritime and refuel aviation and as well we are considering uh, 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 an alliance on renewable fuels for maritime and aviation these are all actually can be looked at as as, as measures that, that that go in that direction which which is on the european level like i said for member states is is also a varied situation and uh the, the 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 framework that we have in europe with with on one hand when it comes to fuels uh, on one hand the, the renewable energy directive and a specific uh, specific uh, actions by the member states can create a framework on an ecosystem where renewable fuels expand quickly they they are targeted and not targeted that they're, they're uh, uh, siphoned uh, to very high to the uh, difficult to decarbonize sectors and then you will we will have the the, the expansion of, of renewable fuels that 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 we want and used in the most efficient way and this this is what we see really as an important step is that we need to use these fuels in an efficient way in in a way that it will help the most because the 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 the, the, the challenges that we face are grave and deep but we don't also we 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 are keen to expand as as quick as possible and this is what we are we're doing and i i heard so many times this uh, in this panel is that we we cannot forget that fit for 55 is really a package so it's not only about transport it's not only about cars and and, and tailpipe approach it's way more than that we have the renewable energy directive we we we, we have a uh, flanking measures and uh, it's it's working on both on supply and on demand side yeah so that's in general my my answer to john stephanie uh what do you think is there a place for pull factors for these fuels so i i absolutely agree with the, the questioner that this is needed um and i'm going to focus on cellulosic biofuels because this is the one category that has the potential to be very very low or negative carbon emissions um, and has the potential to substantially expand production compared to today um, now, cellulosic biofuels are very capital intensive production process. Facilities can cost as much as half a billion dollars. Um, and when this technology is still an emerging technology, it's considered by investors to be high risk. Um, it's really hard to bring that investment in. And we've seen to date that mandates um, in Europe, in the US, elsewhere have not been enough to really build up this industry. So we absolutely do need more direct fiscal support, especially um, to offset the capital costs, such as capital grants. Um, there are, there have been some of those, uh, especially at the EU level, but we need to see more of it, including especially from member states to really help support um, the emerging cellulosic biofuel industry during these early stages. Once the industry has started to, to ramp up, has become more commercialized, that's when mandates will be more effective at continuing to pull it along. Okay, our next question, uh, Valerie, you wanted to come in on that? Yes, yes, I, I'd like to say something about cellulosic ethanol because, um, again, um, I don't believe um, it's, it's not about investment, whether uh, cellulosic ethanol has not 
really develop. It's because I believe um, we did the, the system. The the the, put, the system in place was not uh, correct. I mean, if you if you oppose first generation and advanced uh, generation, then you you lead uh, to this situation where indeed uh, you are contradicting uh, alternatives, and therefore you are almost uh, making it impossible to 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 develop this potential. Uh, what I'm saying is. Um, if you if you if you see a system where you only rely on cellulosic ethanol, for instance, so if you want to really push cellulosic ethanol, then you would run into uh, problems in terms of uh, finding the raw materials. Uh, you know, where do you find it? Where do you where do you find all the straw, for instance? Takes the straw and and how do you store it? And first of all, you're taking it from the uh, the, the cattle, cattle growers. Uh, so basically, you are also creating a lot of problems. Cellulosic ethanol has a role to play in addition to any kind of uh, solutions, including first generation biofuel. And that's how, if we if we diversify, we are limiting the problems of each solution because each solution, aside perhaps from walking and taking a regular bike, not an electric bike, a regular bike, this is the only option that will create almost zero problem. But all the rest, if you are only focusing on one alternative, you will necessarily have problems if you only focus on that one. That's why diversifying means you are also diversifying kind of the problems and, and certainly reducing the problems that each solution has. Thanks, Lutz. So let's get a next question. Uh, this is for uh, this is for whoever would like to answer it, actually. So this question comes from Robin Luce at Bayouk, the European Consumers Organization. Uh, E-fuels are too expensive for consumers. Won't their promotion simply divert investment away from electric vehicles and delay decarbonization? Who would like to take that? Uh, yes, Latko? Yeah, maybe just as an overview or, or an overview picture. It's not easy to say that... Uh, by definition, e-fuels will divert investments into, for instance, zero emission alternatives. Of course, we want uh, to, to use e-fuels as one of the one of the fuels with, with a lot of potential, but also I don't think anybody would, would disagree with a very high cost. So better to use them in the sectors where there is no alternatives. Well, in the road sector, I would not say that they would impede the development of, of uh, electric vehicles, per se, because um, these are on a different process and these are different manufacturers and the different uh, stakeholders here. So the fuels industry will work on e-fuels, of course, uh, hopefully with a focus on waterborne and, and, and aviation. But uh, th this will not, uh, the, the research going into fuels, uh, is still necessary for general decarbonization of, of the whole transport system. It's not specifically for light-duty vehicles, basically. Stephanie, what do you think? Does Is there a risk that e-fuels are a distraction that would be unhelpful? Yes, in short. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be supporting e-fuels. Uh, it is one of the few very low-carbon pathways available to us, and it may be one of the few solutions that we have to decarbonize the aviation sector in particular. Uh, 
So we should be supporting its development. Um, but what I'm afraid of is that if we continue to build internal combustion engine vehicles with the promise of e-fuels um, that turn out later to be way too expensive to actually use in the, the entire internal combustion engine fleet, then we're going to be stuck continuing to burn uh, petroleum for decades to come. And that is not the road to decarbonization for Europe. Would anyone else like to come in on this issue? Again, uh, 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 an, uh, this, an IC car can also run on bioethanol. So it's not black or white. It can be, you know, a bit more simple than that. Indeed. Benjamin? I think there is no choice. Uh, as it has been said before, we need renewable fuels. We need the entire spectrum of renewable fuels. Uh, from the advanced biofuels up to the synthetic fuels power to X has been mentioned already. Uh, currently, the cost is steep. That's correct. Uh, what we need is to achieve economies of scale. And for this, we need investments uh, to bring the production of renewable fuels up to industrial scale. And that will also bring down cost. Road transport can play an important role in this regard because a CO2 price inherent to the CO2 fleet regulation is much higher than maritime and shipping. So here you would have a much more market-based mechanism at play, if I can put it like this, uh, and capacities that can be built up uh, for road transport, which would gradually be less used by vehicles because we will see more electric vehicles on the fleets these capacities that are no longer used by road transport will then ideally go over to maritime and shipping. In any case, I don't think it's useful to pit one sector against the other. Once we build uh, the, the, the production facilities for renewable fuels, the refineries, we will produce the entire spectrum of fuels anyways. So even in a refinery that produces jet fuel, you will have a fraction of gasoline and diesel in there. What do we do with it? So it's not one sector against the other. It is about developing the production of renewable fuels for all the sectors together. It's a joint thing. It's not a one against the other. And every sector has to play its role. Okay, let's take a next question. This is a question for Zlatko. It comes from Elmar Bauman from VDB. Uh, Mr. Craigar, will the commission limit EV accounting to additional renewable electricity due to the indirect effects? Uh, I know I am sounding like a broken record, but I just... Uh, we cannot, uh, the, you know, I cannot disclose uh, what will be in the packages in the package next week, uh, next month. So I understand the, the interest and, 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 and the focus, but uh, in general terms, I can only speak in general terms. So uh, I'm sorry that the colleague who asked the question will not get a satisfying answer, but it is what, what we have today. Yeah. It was. It was a nice try, Elmar, anyway. Did anyone else want to come in on this issue? No, okay. So, uh, uh, wait, Stephanie, go ahead. 
Yeah, so uh, additional, uh, we do need additional renewable electricity. We absolutely need a massive expansion in renewable electricity, um, but it's a more important issue for hydrogen and especially for e-fuels um, because of the energy losses in their production. So uh, uh, hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles use about three times more renewable electricity than battery electric vehicles. And for e-fuels, it's more like five or six times as much renewable electricity as battery electric vehicles. Um, and so it, even if uh, we have additional, additionality problems with renewable electricity uh, and we take that into account, even if um, battery electric vehicles are just using grid electricity, they still deliver strong greenhouse gas reductions compared to internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, but that is not necessarily true, especially for e-fuels. Just using grid electricity, e-fuels um, emit far more greenhouse gas emissions through their life cycle. Uh, when using an internal combustion engine um, compared to, to even just regular cars running on petroleum. Um, so this additionality problem, um, it, it's absolutely something that I hope the European Commission uh, deals with uh, in a robust way. But again, it's, it's much more important when we're talking about hydrogen, especially e-fuels. Uh, Benjamin, Benjamin, you wanted to come in on this? Absolutely, yes. Uh, and additionality is, of course, uh, an, an interesting and important point. Uh, I would like to uh, to add one thought uh, on efficiency. And yes, it's absolutely correct. Uh, there are a few more steps in the process. Uh, if you produce hydrogen, then synthetic fuels, then put them into a vehicle, burn them to, to drive the vehicle. So at each of these steps, you lose energy and that brings down your efficiency. Absolutely correct uh, in, in the description of the problem. I would like to add an idea uh, to this picture. Why not producing renewable fuels where renewable energy is available in more abundant uh, quantities? And you see, I'm not a physicist, I'm, I'm looking for the right words here. But basically what I mean is, let's produce renewable fuels where there is a lot of wind energy, where a lot of wind blows or where a lot of sun is shining. Definitely more than in many of the, uh, of the European uh, locations, which are also already quite used up, uh, I think. There's not that much left. By going into other geographies, and there are uh, great examples, for example, a uh, e-fuel uh, facility in Patagonia using wind energy there, producing e-fuels uh, in a, uh, a project together with Porsche, uh, or using renewable energy, solar energy in Northern Africa or Saudi Arabia. To produce hydrogen and liquid fuels or gaseous fuels opens up the door to use renewable energy that is not available in Europe, but in these other geographies, to bring this to Europe for consumption here which otherwise wouldn't be possible because there's no way of uh, extending the grid to a location in Northern Africa. That may be, uh, but we have been uh, talking about this for quite a while and it hasn't materialized yet. Definitely not to Patagonia, definitely not to Saudi Arabia. So to import energy in the form of, uh, of synthetic, uh, synthetic fuels from locations where there is abundant renewable energy uh, addresses the problem of, uh, of efficiency. It makes available renewable energy in Europe. Okay, so we have a next question here. I'm going to put this to Valerie, uh, but if anyone else would like to come in, just let me know. Uh, it's from an anonymous questioner. With a projected electric vehicle market share of 10% in 2030, together with a 4x multiplier for renewable energy in RED2, in which sectors can biofuel have a future 
post-2030 when the 14% Red 2 target is fulfilled with electric vehicles alone. Uh, Valerie, I think you're on mute. No. I know. You're, you're okay, you're okay, you're not on mute. Okay, sorry. Now, um, so first of all, the 14% is um, under the red two, right? That doesn't take into account uh, what we need to do to achieve the, 20, uh, the 2030 Green Deal objective, which can be around 26, I don't know. We have to see what uh, is coming out of the, uh, the, the commission proposal. Um, Second, uh, electricity, yes, I mean, we, we, electricity is going to develop, that, that's for sure. I mean, uh, if all the energy that is being invested by governments, it is going to develop. But uh, if you want to decarbonize the transport sector today, as we speak, what, what, are, what kind of cars are being bought by, by the consumer? They are hardly not, no electric, a big portion of the electricity electric cars are hybrid cars being purchased. So all these cars still today are being mostly uh, IC uh, vehicles and hybrid and a little bit of uh, plug-in uh, cars. So basically much beyond 2030, the majority of cars will still be uh, running on, on fossil I mean fossil fuel. There will be there will be there will be IC vehicles. So uh, the role of a renewable electric, uh, renewable ethanol will still be uh, absolutely uh, essential after 2030. I hope this answers the question. The question. Yep. Would anyone else like to come in on this? Okay, so we're just about out of time. I, oh, Hannah, yeah, go ahead. You wanted to answer? Yeah, maybe maybe I could add because I, I forgot to say when we started that just today European Parliament was. Uh, voting in favor of climate law. So now it means that uh, we will have, officially, we will have the stricter targets by 2030. And of course, what we are also expecting in the uh, red uh, revision, there will be stricter targets and we are expecting it could be uh, something like 26% for the renewable fuels. But uh, also, now we have been focusing very much to road transport when we speak about renewable fuels, biofuels, but of course we need them also in the aviation because it's very difficult to replace kerosene with anything else than, than biofuels. So I think uh, there is need for the production of biofuels also in the future. What I'm regretting very much is that uh, by revising red uh, regulation now directive, uh, we are creating uncertainty for the industry. Of course, we have to have stricter targets, but I think we shouldn't open up the criteria or the definitions of different renewable fuels, because I think this is something that's very harmful. It has been harmful for our industry during the last months that there has been so much uncertainty, because now we should boost investments in this area in, in Europe. And when the, the, the it's coming very, very soon, if we look from the perspective of in, industry. So I think we lo should look more and more 2050 and the industry should be able to make now investments uh, towards that also. So I think long-term certainty is needed more from the industrial side also that we can boost investments in this, this uh, sector because they are really needed when we speak of renewable fuels or, and, and biofuels. Okay, cool. 
So we're just about out of time. I'd love to get some concluding thoughts from each of you. Um, Zlatko, let's start with you. What are your key takeaways from today's conversation? Well, uh, I will use this opportunity as, as, as some closing remarks uh, because uh, I heard uh, from, from my colleagues here that uh, they want and we need, from all sides, I would say that we need support for renewable fuels because they're they're currently rather expensive and we to get these sustainable fuels on the market we have to overcome uh, a lot of uh, practical barriers and therefore I, I would mention something which i didn't mention yet because in the aftermath of the july package we will also we are we're currently looking into establishing a low carbon and renewable fuels uh, value chain alliance so an alliance with stakeholders with industry where where we look at the practical hindrances and the practical problems that uh, delivery of these fuels uh, to the market uh, how can we uh, resolve this it is it will be focused of course on on aviation maritime which uh, i've been uh, uh, reiterating several times but it also shows that we are ready that the package is not coming in as isolation we are coming also with the flanking measures and with support uh, for the for the for the increased uptake and of course I think another thread that has been uh, going through, through this disc the discussion is that the challenge we are facing is quite uh, quite tough. And uh, the reduction of 55% reduction in, in just not even nine years from now, it, it's it's a very big challenge. And therefore, we the commission we need, will be proposing bold uh, and ambitious proposals but uh, I'm sure that we are all going to be ready for the details coming on the 14th of July. And we will see that we are taking a holistic approach. So not just looking at one piece of regulation. We are looking at everything, how to get to 55% reduction soon. Henna, um, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned the, the European Parliament vote today. I should have mentioned that at the beginning. It was a nice news peg. Um, so Henna, what are your concluding thoughts today? Yeah, I think we all, all agree that we are facing huge challenges, uh, how we should decarbonize the transport sector in the next decades. And I think everybody agreed that uh, many different solutions are, are needed here. And I think today we were focusing quite much to uh, clean fuels and sustainable fuels, and that is the important part. But I think we should also look at uh, the transport infrastructure and logistics as a whole, how we could make the whole system more efficient. And also, of course, we have to invest uh, to technology of the vehicles, so how to have more clean vehicles also. And, and uh, uh, that's why I think... Uh, we should underline also the role of research and development that these investments are really really needed that we should could find a new more efficient uh, solutions for this sector also and uh, from the industrial side because of course the investments are made mostly from the private sector i think we have to give more long term certainty for the industries that they know to where they they should invest in and also we should be technology neutral as the decision makers we shouldn't uh, choose the winning technologies or losing technologies we should i think uh, set the targets and then the industry they should find what is the most efficient way to reach these targets benjamin what's your key takeaway today 
I can actually not not add much to what uh, Hena has just said, uh, apart from the fact that I'm really glad that the principle of technology neutrality and technology openness uh, seems to to get some attention uh, in in the debate. I think this is really important. I think also we all agree on the challenges ahead. We need to achieve climate neutrality. We need to bring down CO2 emissions. Uh, I think it's good that we have a healthy debate on how best to do that. And it's normal that there are different opinions uh, around. Technology neutrality will be important going forward. Uh, defossilizing the energy and fuel supply will be absolutely key. We have to achieve this in any case. And that can create a level playing field for all technologies, uh, battery electric, hybrids with a combustion engine, to compete on their respective merits and through that make the the objective climate neutrality uh, an objective for all of us and achieve it with our European competitive industries rather than, than against it. Stephanie, what's your key takeaway? The path to a fully decarbonized transport sector in Europe is narrow and is going to be difficult. So we really need to put all our efforts into the best solutions we have, battery electric vehicles, fuel cell electric vehicles, very low carbon, second generation um, biofuels. We can't afford to continue using the scarce um, availability of very low carbon fuels that we're likely to have in internal combustion engine vehicles in the road sector, not when road, uh, the road sector is the easiest by far to electrify we also can't afford to keep investing in food-based biofuels that offer at best maybe a 50% greenhouse gas reduction when we account for land use change emissions. That's not going to get us on the path to full decarbonization. So we need to uh, push as hard as we can on electric vehicles. And we also need to really ramp up um, investment support for ultra low carbon technologies such as cellulosic biofuels. And finally, Valerie, what's your key takeaway? Well, my key takeaway for me is that if we are to achieve our objective, we have to be extremely pragmatic as opposed to dogmatic. Uh, I believe, I'm, I'm convinced that this is the way forward is to diversify. We need to make sure that each and every single alternative is properly measured, fairly, and all the way through uh, the cycle. Uh, this is very important also because we all, another important thing is to take care of the purchasing power of consumers. We need to make sure that decarbonizing the transport sector is going to be for everybody and not just for the happy few who can afford uh, expensive technologies. And I just would like to remind also that bioethanol is sustainable, it's available and it's affordable and it's also produced locally supporting jobs in the EU, because we didn't talk about that, but that's also very important. Thanks a lot, and thanks to all the panelists for some great interventions today. And thank you to you at home for following along, for spending your afternoon with us, and for asking some great questions. Certainly, there is a lot to look ahead to on July 14th when the Fit for 55 package comes out. I know I am waiting with bated breath, and then uh, people like Zlatko can then talk more freely about what's in that package come September. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for spending your afternoon with us, and be sure to join us again for the next EA Debates. <laughs>